welcome back, Dreadfuls. You're listening to another episode of Left for Dread, the horror podcast for everyone from newbies to fanatics. I'm your host, Ray. And I'm your other host, Chris. Today we're talking about The Cell. Now, this movie is from 2000, and I had read as spoiler-free of an article as I possibly could very recently, which is why I put it on the list saying how The Cell is an underrated horror movie. And I went, huh, I appreciate underrated horror movies. Let's check it out, Chris. And the first thing I'm surprised by, Roger Ebert loved this movie. <laughs> yeah, Roger Ebert, of all people, he, he uh, and I quote, for, for all of his visual pyrotechnics, it's also a story where we care about the characters. There's a lot at stake at the end and we're involved. I know people who hate it, Finding it pretentious or unrestrained, I think it's one of the best films of the year. He later put this on his uh, top 10 best movies of 2000. Following up saying, Tarsim, the director, is a visual virtuoso who juggles his storylines effortlessly. It's dazzling the way he blends so many notes, styles, and genres into a film so original. So coming from Roger Ebert, that's... Uh, that's that means a lot, and I find it really curious because like a lot of the critics are panning this as a mediocre or cheap eye candy film. Like like it's like it's all eye candy, no substance. So I just find it really fascinating between uh, like this disparity between those two types of reviews because m- majority of them are like on the either mediocre or negative spectrum. Yeah, I have to be honest with you, though. I didn't hate this movie. I'm not like, I think, I so I started rewatching it again before we started recording. I'm enjoying it a little bit more the more I watch it. I feel like I definitely would have been the, one of those people had I seen it uh, 19 years ago now, holy crap, that I would have been like one of those people that's like, oh my god, The Cell is an underrated horror movie. It's brilliant. I love it. I didn't see it in the 2000s. In the 2000s, I feel like, yes, The Cell is an underrated horror movie. I think The Cell could have been, dare I say, a little ahead of itself. I didn't find it pretentious in the least. I think that it tried to accomplish a lot of things that I feel like if a director tried to do that now, it would be more appreciated. And maybe this could be one of those movies that could benefit from a remake. And that's not a negative. There are some movies where you're like, remake this, it's crap, or remake this, it's time. I I think it might be a little bit gorier than this one, and I think maybe that's some of the things I enjoyed about it. There wasn't a ton of gore, but it was still a fucked up movie. It was still a pretty freaky movie. For for me, I thought the movie was decent. I wasn't blown away by it, but I didn't think it was terrible. Uh, Out of five, it, it was like a three, three out of five, or three out of five dream machines whatever and i think the one of the big things in terms of its visual language you know that that's, a, that's something that's been panned a lot like people are saying it's really eye candy or it's it's bordering on i, I wouldn't say it's torture porn but like there's a lot of like sexualized imagery i mean because because we're, we're, we're like di- we're diving into like the serial killer's mind uh we see how he views women and they're they're all portrayed like these really strange hellraiser-esque doll-like contraptions and aesthetics so i can see where they're coming from but what i saw is 
this movie is a psychological thriller, it's like a sci-fi horror film, but it also tries to play in the same space as like an art house film, especially with all of its artistic rep influences. Like the scenery, especially in the dreamscapes, are heavily inspired by so many types of artists like H.R. Geiger, Damien Hirst, he's a British artist, the Brothers Quay, and it's also influenced a lot by certain music videos. And the setting and the visual language is is so surreal and it's meant to be that because majority of it takes place in the dream world and i could see why people could think of that as like pretentious or it 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 trying too hard i didn't see like that i thought it was just like a really interesting alternate take on on how to like visually compose or visually represent you know a story yeah i think about it this way how many times have scientists taken a a serial killer's brain and have it and and tore it open and looked for any sort of scientific signs post-death of what sort of led them to be where they are. A lot. It's, it's happened probably more frequently than we think of. Can you imagine what it would be like going into someone's mind like that while they're still alive, while they're still able to consciously think and create and come up with things? That could, I mean, even trying to think about that on a scientific level, that is fascinating and phenomenal. And I think that the fact that in 2000, someone decided to make a movie about that and made it hauntingly beautiful in a way I think is fantastic but it did sort of get a little ahead of itself I think I don't I think the reason why people find it pretentious is because maybe they weren't ready for it like I said earlier I think that if this movie came out now people would not have nearly as much of an issue with it as they did 19 years ago because you're you're seeing like Ari Aster has done beautifully beautifully looking horror movies like Midsommar, that was stunning to look at. The visuals alone were creepy and pretty all at the same time. He could actually be the perfect person to remake this movie if it were to be done. And I don't think anybody would find it pretentious. I think I think it would achieve what it wants to achieve. That being said, there were a lot of things that I noticed that were paying homages to other movies or that other movies took from this movie. Like, for example, this movie came out uh, in 2000. Bram Stoker's Dracula came out in 1998, I believe. It was like 98 or 99, yeah. Right, so before this one, obviously. While I was watching this, the suits that they put them in when they go into their subconscious, I said, huh, that suit looks awfully like Dracula's armor in Bram Stoker's Dracula. That can't be right. Not only is it stupid similar, the costume designer is the exact same person on both movies. Oh, so they probably just like reused it. <laughs> so she probably just reused it and re and just changed it ever so slightly, but it looked identical. And that sort of like irked me a little, but what didn't bother me is Vincent D'Onofrio, first of all, is an underrated actor, especially in movies like this. I think he was hands down the best part of this movie. He absolutely was. His performance was scary in a really, really, really good way. But him aside, there were things that he was doing with his body that definitely made me think of Red Dragon from 2002, uh, where Ralph Fiennes plays the Red Dragon. And there are certain ticks that he did and things that he did when he was trans- transforming into the Red Dragon that I feel like we're done by D'Onofrio in this movie. 
did Ralph Fiennes watch this movie to sort of prep for that? I don't know, but it felt very similar to Red Dragon in that respect. And it sort of made Red Dragon a little bit uh, clearer with that. And then I also, after watching this, I went into a whole, uh, whole literally about suspension and <laughs> schizophrenia and a bunch of things that they talked about in the film just to see if there were if they held any weight. There's like scientific fact or backing. Exactly, exactly. And there is and there isn't. The disease that they claim that he has in this film was made up for the movie. That does not exist. It's a super rare form of schizophrenia that basically puts you into a coma. Yeah, Waylon's infraction does not exist. It's not real. Schizophrenia is real, but his particular brand of schizophrenia does not exist. It was made up for the movie. I did, um, I actually know someone who recently... Uh, did suspension for the first time like like not like hooks in the back no she had she she had hooks in her back oh really wow and she used uh she didn't do the superman which is what technically what he was doing she sort of uh she had hooks in her back and it kind of looked um i don't want to say like a peacock but it kind of looked like a fan and she pulled on something and it raised her above the ground wow herself like she pulled herself up that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she posted uh, of she posted videos and photos of it on Facebook. Obviously, there was a graphic warning thing because it's not for everybody, and I get it. She was very proud of herself. I think that that is uh, I've, I've, from the things that I've read coming off of this movie. The people that choose to do suspension as part of a body modification find it very freeing. You do get a feeling of weightlessness, which is. So Sort of, but not really connected to schizophrenia. I like that they sort of made that connection, though. But yeah, there are. I don't think it's a. I don't think it's a fetish. I think it's a way to release anxiety, and I think it's a. I think it's just a freeing thing that people want to overcome. It could be a fetish for some people. Well, it's a spectrum. Like I'm sure there's like a variety of reasons. I'm sure there is. So. I went into like, I went down this whole rabbit hole with suspension and schizophrenia and all of these things and like weightlessness in reference to schizophrenia and if that's a thing. When I looked up weightlessness and schizophrenia, what came up was an altered sense of self. The blurring of the person's feelings of who he or she is, he or she may feel weightlessness or not be able to distinguish where their body ends and the outside world begins. They're talking about extreme apathy there, I I think. And I think that is just a very, very general overture of schizophrenia. That's not even scratching the surface. It's barely an itch, but... Watching this movie made me look up all kinds of shit. I mean, from a visual standpoint, it's very striking. A little back to a little bit, uh, Vincent D'Onofrio, he plays a serial killer whose his, his MO is kidnapping like college age young women and transforming them to dolls. So he puts them in the cell, which is the name of the movie. It fills up with water and they drown to death. And while they're being tormented, uh, he suspends himself uh, from these racks while watching it through a CCTV system. And it's this very striking scene where you see the hooks in the back. You see like the, the flesh, like literally like hanging in drapes. And it's like a, it's a very visually striking scene. And and I liked I, I like how they tried to connect it to other concepts like schizophrenia or the 
or freedom or the the the, the, the chasing of freedom and it, i think they all form an interesting mosaic of how we uh, peel back the layers of denofra especially when we go back into or we go deeper to the dreamscape so one of the things that i found really interesting is that right before jennifer lopez yes jennifer lopez is in this movie and she i, I <laughs> thought she was a pretty decent actress in this film she was pretty decent in this she was better in this than she was in anaconda Right before she goes into his subconscious, she was talking about the scars in his back and the holes in his back. And she said, what happened here? And he said, well, we found him with hooks in his back. And that's when the conversation about suspension came in in relationship to his schizophrenia. And she was saying it's a feeling of weightlessness that they like. She said, you should have left them in. And I found that curious because were they expecting him... Like, he's in a coma. There's no way he could know that they took those out. But in every scene that you see in his subconscious, except when he's a small child, he has those hooks in his back. He has everything that he had, the loops, they're not hooks, like prior to him falling into a coma. Everything you see, he has them. Whether he's sitting next to a bathtub and he's not suspended by anything. Whether it's the first appearance of his godlike form. Yeah, it's like this giant drapes and curtains all attached to these rings and he's like this is when we see him in his demon king form and he's like he's like descending the stairs and like these purple drapes are following and there's there's like this bird's eye view shot of him walking down the stairs and the the, the drapes following him it's again i mean i could see how people can find it that the, the visual language is pretentious but i thought it was like oh this is at least something definitely definitely different i thought it was beautiful first of all i really wish i had seen this movie prior to now only because when I was in college and I took stage makeup, we had to create a book that was like a reference book of all these different makeup looks. So for young, middle-aged, old, special effects, all this. Boy, do I wish I had seen this movie before that because all of his demon looks absolutely would have gone into that. Every single one of them. The white knight slash the white king look. His demon overlord look his actual demon look the the reptilian overlord look at the end of the movie each one of them was creepy and yet visually stunning which is again why i i don't see the pretentious element in any of this i think my favorite look because he was the creepiest while he was doing it is like the white king look with the long fingernails and the pope like hat and everything is pristine and and clean and white and the way he tortures vince vaughn in this movie i mean it was just and what what I love about it, like the makeup, and the uh, the practical effects, is it was it was definitely extra, but like it wasn't extra to the point where you couldn't recognize or you couldn't see visit visit D'Onofrio's face. Like his face was fully there, and they could see him emote and like just look so twisted and so messed up. It's like wow. Uh, and this is way before D'Onofrio had his like you know his second renaissance with daredevil and then jurassic world like this is long before that really i'm really curious how they found him for this film because he's easily the best part of this film oh 100 percent. he wasn't lost in any of this but i do think that the simplicity of his makeup makes it all the more visually wonderful to look at it is the simplicity that sort of creates all of this and makes all of this if that makes any sense there were just a few minute things that I found problematic with this movie, but nothing that took me out of it, nothing that would make me say anything negative about it. 
I mean, I'm like you in the sense that I wasn't blown away, but I could see why people would say that this is an underrated movie. Had I seen this in the 2000s, I absolutely would have been on that ship. I think that looking at it 19 years after the fact, I can say it's underrated for 2000 and that if it were remade today, it would absolutely be 10 times gorier. And I don't think that that's always the answer. I think that it's the way it was done and this might sound pretentious, but the artistic approach that the director took to this movie is what makes this movie what it is. For a horror film, it's pretty gore-light. I mean, I guess the most grisly part was... Vince Vaughn's torture scene? Yeah, Vince Vaughn's where he's getting like his testings pulled out, but... He's not just getting them pulled out. He's getting them like... It's on a rack. It's on a barbed wire rack. Yeah, it's on a rack like a jack-in-the-box. It's like do-do-do-do-do-do-do. And he's like singing while he's doing it. So that that just creates a whole other element too. And then we later see it's inspired by a painting, like some medieval painting that he had in his attic. His little reference space. His dream board, if you will. His dream board. <laughs> his dream board. But I don't think this film wasn't gory. I think it was a more subtle horror, where it's like, it's just exploring like the surreal recesses of a serial killer's mind and how it's twisted and you just see like his id fully out of control, especially in that one montage where you just see like this, it's like this twisted funhouse carnival space where you just see like different types of women or his victims all all on display and then there was like really striking scene where they find like this giant ceremonial chamber and like his animus or the manifestation of julia is in this giant tank and she's appearing as like this fey mermaid looking creature like that was like really striking it's like it's not scary it's just but it's like it's surreal and it's like like oh this is what's going on it, it takes you back and it shocks you and it, like, it just makes you like think like oh that's what is going on here i think that's where the the terror and like the unsettled settlingness resides so it's a, i think it's a it's a sub subversive form of horror and uh i think it's something that's different I, I, it's definitely a different approach to to it because i feel like if someone else did this it, could, it would be like inception but with more gore or like more monsters but this one was restrained and it tried to play it it, it just felt to be smart horror as as opposed to like the easy task of just doing like oh, this is dream horror. So this is something like like out of Freddy Krueger's world. Yeah, let's get let's go balls to the wall because it's in a dream and nothing matters. Exactly, yeah. I, I think that this movie was a perfect blend of psychological sci-fi horror. And there were just so many elements that you wouldn't think would go together that, that did. I do understand what the director was trying to do. And I do give him kudos for that. And clearly Roger Ebert does too, which I still blow. It's, uh, that blows my mind of, of all of this is how much Roger Ebert loved this movie. He really loved this movie. <laughs> he really loves this movie. So I was going to initially watch this movie at night and instead I watched it during the day. And that ended up being a much better choice for me and I will tell you why. I fall asleep very quickly and very hard. My whole life I have felt my dreams very vividly and I mean like on a physical level, I have felt them. Something has happened to me in a dream and it's woken me up and I've had a very real, very visceral, very physical reaction to them. So watching this movie, it was very, very fucking effective for me. 
Like, it really tripped me up. I, I was really happy I watched it during the day. Because if I had watched this movie right before I went to sleep, it really would have done things to my mind. So I think even on that level, this just, that just makes it in a very effective horror movie. That alone, like, it could have been, it could have been a horrible movie, but the fact that that's where they went with it, it was automatically just going to be effective for me. So it sounds like I have, like, a love affair with this movie, and I don't. I just think the more I watch it, the more I enjoy it, and the more I appreciate what the director was trying to accomplish. But there are a few things in this movie that did sort of bother me. One of them was the movie opens with, what you later find out is a therapy session with a little boy that's in a coma. And when she comes out of it, they make it a point of having a dialogue in the form of the four and 20 blackbirds poem. It's like a code to make sure she's conscious. To make sure she's not in the dream world. Because they, they, they do a, a bait and switch with that. Uh, in one of the scenes in the middle of the film. Where she wakes up and she's still in the room. But but she's still actually inside the dream. But she still thinks she's in the real world still. So Yeah. So was there a point to show us that? Because that, 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 po- that poem never comes up ever again. Exactly. And it really irked me. Why show it to us? So unless I buy the DVD or the blu-ray i can't listen to the audio commentary and watch any deleted scenes to see if it explains this i did read uh an article and i will put this on the website that was from film school rejects i believe was the website and it says 30 things that we learned from the audio commentary of the cell and in these 30 points none of them explain this poem so i'm guessing he doesn't mention it what was the point then yeah, I don't, I'm not familiar with the poem entirely, but does it play some bigger significance? No, no, I think I think it was just the idea. It's just like a throwaway poem. It's just, it's, the th- director thought it sounded cool. I, I'm guessing it's a great, it's a great theme. Why wouldn't you want to carry that through? Maybe there was another plan for it. So I would love to like get my hands on deleted scenes or commentary or something to see if it explains it because it really, it really bothered, <laughs> really bothered me. Because it's just something that's so obvious and it's so there. And after growing up and watching movies like Inception, where they use the dream world and they use all these things to sort of help you point out what's real and what isn't, why would you have that and then not use it? Like, it's, it's actually really great. Because an argument then could be made that she's still there and none of that happened because they never did it ever again. I bet you it was a, it was a deleted scene that was cut out. So, yeah. again, I, 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 this is just <laughs> me being nitpicky. The more I watch it, the more I sort of... Uh, get entertained by a lot of the other things. Like one thing that I didn't notice the first time was when Vincent D'Onofrio is sitting there next to the bathtub and he's smoking a cigarette. One of the times he exhales, he doesn't just exhale out of his nose, it, it exhales through all the holes in his body. <laughs> and I didn't notice that the first time. For me, it wasn't a point of criticism. I, I just thought it was a, a unique artistic choice. So the the entire film purposely looks like it's it was aged. It has like this, there's like special effects. Like the, a lot of the filmography or well, a lot of the film looks like it was recorded on like an older style camera. Like it was like something the, like it wasn't like super crisp. The film had like this muted quality. Uh, and, it, and this 
was a lot more pre- prevalent, especially uh, in Jennifer Lopez's scenes in the dreamscape, especially when she's in the middle of the desert. Uh, all throughout the film, like you just see like these imperfections on the film, and like you see like these purposeful cigarette burns that like these little black dots that just appear in like the, the corners of the film. And I was really curious about that, and I wasn't sure if they were trying to deliberately make a point where they were trying to make the entire movie look dreamlike or trying to make it look real but not quite real Um, as if you're watching a film recording a lucid dream but i just found that visual style like a interesting take actually you said something earlier that has me thinking about something the director said you said that vincent d'onofrio's character is a killer he likes to watch them through the monitors it's the way the director likes to direct his movies. He won't look at the camera. Oh, really? Oh, so you just, he only... He only looks at the monitors. He won't look at the camera. Wow. Even to set up shots? I guess he doesn't like it. Really? That's a... That's a... That's like a really avant-garde, strange way of filming. But, huh. And that just, that just adds something else to this movie. Whether it was intentional or not. But I was thinking about it while you were That's saying so it. so weird. <laughs> it's a weird fucking movie, Chris. I do think one of the things that uh, sort of helped us along that this was not an origin story of Vincent D'Onofrio. You caught him right in the middle of a spree. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, after, like, this, this was his, like, his eighth or ninth kill. I love that. I love it. I love that there's no origin story, that there's no, why did he get like this? Because we sort of learn more about him in, in going into his mind. And we don't even really, we learn enough to know that he had a fucked up childhood. I feel like with this film, more than a lot of other films, like, a lot of other films involving serial killers, like, they try to establish root causes... We don't need any of that. This was great the way it was. You literally started his arc in the middle of a fucking killing spree. I don't want to know why he snapped. I don't want to know when he snapped. He snapped. We're watching him bleach the shit out of women and turn them into dolls. I mean, we later later we find out like they uh, like through the interactions with young his young self that moment of clarity he had in the end where like the evil reptilian version comes to find them when D'Onofrio uh, is taken into jennifer lopez's mind as a safe space and you you see this denouement this reveal where d'onofrio expresses like oh yeah i one time when i was a kid i found this bird it was hurt and i my my father was gonna find out so i did the, the the merciful thing i killed it myself and to relieve its suffering and it was an indirect way of telling Lopez to do the same thing to him. But I just found it, I, I just found, I, I really enjoyed it being in Mary Res, and then you slowly peel back the layers, and it doesn't quite make you sympathize with, with the character, because, like, like, obviously, he, he's a monster, but it just peels back the layers, uh, and it shows, I, I, if, if not anything else, it just gives D'Onofrio more of a play space to, like, show off his chops. Because, like, for the most of this film, he, we see him be super psychotic. And then, like, in that moment of, like, clarity 
right before he died is like this he provides like this really short but moving final scene can he do more horror stuff now like i don't care that it's later in life just do it david harbour is all over the place right now my dude like you can be too go do more horror what's he doing right now <laughs> so he's in he's in rings oh i never saw that i haven't seen it either he's in sinister 2 i never saw that either i saw the first one though <laughs> Uh, me too. So those are two recent horror films. Oh, he was in the first Sinister as well. Uh, he plays Professor Jonas, but he's uncredited for some reason. It's been a while since I've seen Sinister. He's in Men in Black. Which one? The first one, he plays... He plays Edgar. What? He plays the he plays the main villain. Oh my god, he does. I had no idea. He plays the main villain. Oh my god. He's the cockroach. He's the cockroach in a man suit. That, he's so unrecognizable in that. So I it doesn't seem to, he hasn't done a lot of horror films. He did a lot of Law and Order. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I know this is getting away from the movie, but what? What would you cast them in? Like, what type of film? A horror movie. Oh, uh, like, what kind of horror film? Like, like this one. I want something that can really tap into how fucked up he can be. Because this movie really dove into the mind of someone who was unwell, but very demented. And obviously, when you, when you do that as an actor, it, it can affect your own well-being. And without doing that, I love to see actors explore all of that. So I would love to see Vincent D'Onofrio do something like this again. Maybe not to this degree. Agree, maybe a little bit more extreme, maybe less extreme. I don't really have a preference. I would just love to see him explore something like this again because this was just so different. And I guess part of the reason why I'm having such a positive reaction to it is because I've always want. There is a sick part of my brain that has always wanted to get inside the head of a serial killer and see what is going on in there. What makes them tick? What makes them do the things that they do and react the way that they do? What drives them to do certain things, motivation, etc. So this movie gave, sort of like fulfilled that tiny need that I have. So I would love to see more shit like this. But anything that comes after this, you're gonna say it's a, it's, it's an homage or a rip of the cell. And I don't, I don't care. I don't care. I want more. So would you want to watch the sequel? Because there is a cell too. No, there isn't. Yeah, there is. No. Or no. do you just, you're just re rejecting it? Is it done by the same director? Uh, so it's a direct to DVD movie. Oh, Produced shit. in 2009. Directed by Tim Icofano. Written by Alex Barter, Rob Renew, Lawrence Silverstein. Uh, just to do a quick fact check. I, yeah, I don't think anyone from the original production team is involved in this project. Then, no, I'm not going to watch. No, I might watch it on my own time. I don't know if I would watch it for the show only because if I can't get through it, I don't want to disappoint anybody. <laughs> do, do you want me to give you like the premise, the synopsis? Okay, so similar to the first film, it, it also involves the concept of someone in diving to the mind of a serial killer. So, quote, it centers on the cusp, a serial killer who murders his victims and then brings them back to life over and over again until they beg to die. Maya is a psychic investigator and surviving victim of the cusp whose abilities developed after spending a year in a coma. Maya must use her powers to travel to the mind of the killer unprotected in order to save his latest victim. Okay, so you're telling me that we went from science to, to the supernatural. Yes. <laughs> no. 
No. <laughs> no. I might watch it on my own time, but I'm not. No. That is not canon. No, it's not canon. I'm sorry. I do not accept it. The Cell 2 was released on DVD on June 16, 2009. It was named one of the worst movies of 2009 by Bloody Disgusting. Well, I can't imagine why. I'm looking at the cast list for Cell 2, and one of the things that really struck me about Cell 1, the cast was so stacked with so many heavy hitters. But they weren't heavy hitters at the time, though. That's that's the thing you have to think about. I, I guess so. I mean, this was 2000. Vince Vaughn, Vince Vaughn hadn't made a name for himself yet. Jennifer Lopez was still acting. I mean, we all knew her as a singer, but this is while she was acting. This before she went to go make it big as a star, as a friggin' Latin icon. And Vincent D'Onofrio, this was before Law and Order. I know, but like, I guess, you know, I guess hindsight's twenty twenty. but like, you got Jennifer Lopez, D'Onofrio, Vince Vaughn, Jake Weber, uh, Dean Norris. Actually, Peter Sarsgaard also makes a cameo appearance uncredited in this movie as well. Oh, really? No way. Right. This movie is pretty good. Part of me has a craving for the commentary and for these deleted scenes. So part of me just wants to buy the movie just so I have access to that and that alone. <laughs> we could do it. <laughs> we have the technology. <laughs> I stand by my original statement. This movie absolutely was un- was underrated for, for the year 2000. I think that a not super gory remake of this movie would not hurt the film at all. I'm sorry, all we have is Cell 2. <laughs> no, I'm ignoring that. <laughs> and I don't I don't think it I don't think it's a negative to say it co- it could benefit from a remake only because I I don't think that the cell was truly appreciated in its time. And a lot of people could get impatient watching that movie today and have the same reaction of its negative of have a negative reaction and think it's pretentious. So that would be my only excuse for wanting a, a remake really which is a shit excuse for a remake but people have made remakes for less well we we live in the, we live in the society that are the age of the remake so i statistically sooner or later someone's gonna come along instead of remaking the princess bride let's remake this <laughs> i thought the internet like said no i thought that I thought that was... Is that actually still happening? Well, put it this way. Collectively, as the internet, we got them to fix Sonic. So maybe collectively, as an internet, we can get them to not remake The Princess Bride. Yes, the power of internet rage. I don't... I don't... (laughs) I don't want to push our luck. But maybe let's, like, switch that remake power over to this. Yes. (laughs) And we're just going to ignore that the Cell 2 exists. I refuse to acknowledge its existence. Okay. Okay, cool. (laughs) Next thing you know, for your birthday, for Christmas, you just see a package in your door. <laughs> Do not get me the cell two for Christmas. I will burn it and send you a video of me burning it. Do not do it, Chris. <laughs> And with that... How many demon lords would you give this? I would give it three out of five demon lords. I would give it a 3.8. Ooh. Because it's not quite a four, but it's, it, I think it surpasses a 3.5. Okay. Because the more I watch it, the more entertained I am by it. Uh, that's fair. And D'Onofrio himself... As a presence? D'Onofrio, though, gets six out of five demon lords. He's just like, he's just extra demon. I mean, this movie won a bunch of rewards. Wow, it won the uh, Academy Award for Best Makeup. Best Period or Fantasy Film for the Art Directors Guild. Vincent D'Onofrio got the Best Favorite Supporting Actor for the Blockbuster Entertainment Awards. Best Villain for the MTV Movie Awards. 
So he, he got some accolades. Six out of five Nafrios. I hope you enjoy the sell, like as we clearly did. And on that note, thank you for listening to another episode of Left for Dread. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Literally every single thing helps. You can listen to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify every Friday. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Left for Dread Pod. You can find us on Facebook. And you can find us on our website at leftfordread.com. <laughs> Last but not least, don't forget, stay, stay dreadful. dreadful.